Conceptually? 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 What it does to, to show the Jewish religion in a, in a good light. Religion, Jewish values. Not good enough. Oh, I, mean, I can't get it right tonight. Can I clean the blackboard? <laughs> no, I don't know. What part am I intensely concerned about and why? Those are those the book. And that's the history part. You're moderately concerned about the history. Part, we'll get right? to that point. Moderate will get to in a minute. Tell Gina we need her. I am intensely concerned about the tail. The who? The mound. The tail. The mound. The tail. The tail. Why am I so concerned about that? Obviously, because it challenges basic beliefs that I, as an Orthodox Jew, have. This tell story raises questions, very serious questions, about my, our religious path that I, we have to answer. You should have been very concerned in reading the book. The book takes us back to the year 10,000 B.C. As every Jew knows, our history began with 5,763 years ago. So when you're reading 10,000 before the Common Era, you're going to raise that question. How does that tell go back to 10,000 when the history of the world begins 57, 63 years ago? Now, obviously, that wasn't an issue for the rest of us. Yeah, I'm pretty surprised by that. <laughs> Can somebody explain that to me? There's a real problem. There's a real problem in here being how we're all your students. Okay, well, let me expand upon that point and see where we're going to go with it. Right? Are there other areas that you may engage in that raise the same sort of question? Sure. 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 As, for example, in the scientific realm, the age of the universe and or evolution would certainly challenge your beliefs that Judaism may put forward. Or biblical criticism. Good to see you. Biblical criticism, as well, is a very, very challenging endeavor. Studying philosophy, which deals with issues such as existence of God, is a very challenging question. Or the notion of absolute versus relative morality, which philosophy deals with as well, is a very challenging issue. Raising very serious questions for us as Jews. Psychology. What 60s writer raised all kinds of trouble for Jews? Orthodox Jews, in his sense. Who? That is him. He's, he's a beatnik, right? No. He's a beatnik. No. No. <laughs> he's a novelist. Psychologist. Harvard. Harvard. B.F. Skinner. What did B.F. Skinner say? Sorry? Black box. Black box. You have no free will. All behavior can be... All behavior. All behavior is developed. That you have no free will. That if he were to know every single detail about your life, he would very clearly tell you what you are doing tomorrow morning. Now, to a great degree, he's right, obviously. We know the kid was raised in Borough Park, and the kid who was uh, in a very small little Condition. world, he's conditioned to put on to clean tomorrow morning. For sure he's putting on to clean tomorrow morning. So of course he's putting on to clean tomorrow morning. He has no free will not to put on to clean tomorrow morning. And... The skin would say that if I knew all the facts and all the variables about your life, I will clearly tell you exactly what you're going to do. He demonstrates it such as this. Here's the person. He's happy. He lives in Borough Park. He wears the Yarnica. 
Yes, it was. Right? And whatever influences came into him over here is all going to, of necessity, lead to effect S. That's going to happen. That cannot change. And therefore, Bieskina wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. We all associate our dignity with our freedom. That because you have free will, therefore, you are a dignified human being. And we would all say, prior to Bieskina, that if we had no freedom, then we're not dignified. Because then we're robots. Or animals. Or animals. Right. Running only by instinct. But even worse than animals. I mean, in the sense that you have no free will. So he had to write a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity and tell us in that book that there is something dignified about not having freedom. So in the 60s or 70s, early 70s, late 60s, that was a major issue on college campuses. It started schools of psychology and behavioralism. Right? How to program a person to do what's right. And ultimately challenged not directly, of course, but challenged our fundamental belief in free will. The entire Bible is based on the notion that we have the free will to choose A or B, good or, or evil. So B.F. Skinner challenged it. So in the area of science, in psychology, in philosophy, in all areas, questions are raised that challenge fundamental beliefs of Judaism. Now, in reading the source... I became intensely concerned about this issue. How do I deal with the issue of a 10,000 year old mound? Tail means mound. Right? It's challenging. I read this book 10, 15 years ago. And it was an issue then. But of course I was aware that it really raises questions in all disciplines. Whatever you're going to study. Let's say you study history of religions. Right? You try to get a a BA or an, or an MA or a PhD in history of religions. Could be a major in college, go to graduate school. That's obviously also going to raise very serious questions about your basic beliefs. Now, I want to respond to these issues. Not because my synagogue demands it, they're happy without worrying with this question. Not because the community that I come from demands it, they're very happy living with these questions or not even asking the questions. Right? Sorry? Not addressing. They don't address it at all. Correct. Exactly. They don't have the questions. They don't address the questions. But to me, as a personal need, I couldn't get past this first chapter without raising the question of how am I going to reconcile a 10,000-year-old hill with what we are taught in school. Right? So, in reading the source, I felt that we have to address the questions that emerge. Right? So now, we have this first question. Age of the earth. Archaeology raises serious questions for the Orthodox Jew. To this very day, if you were to read any contemporary works on biblical archaeology, they're telling you that there was no exodus. Why? We found no evidence. Corroborating evidence. Where's the garbage? Right. No corroborating evidence. That, must, that was my question of the week. <laughs> to everybody, me? Everybody I spoke to. I want to know where is the garbage? Of I started. Yes, yeah, the forty-year desert. Forty years of whatever it is, four million people walking across the desert. Right, but it was. You said there's no answer. You don't there's no garbage. I said that where's the no, garbage? No, you don't want to say there's no answer. There's no garbage. Didn't they not like use the bathroom over the flight? Like, wasn't it a miracle that Hashem made it that they didn't need the bathroom? They didn't need. Certain we don't have that in the shot of the text. 
The Peshara text does not tell me that. So I'm not worried about whatever that Midrash is. It's not, it's not, my, it's not in my text. So Midrash, good, okay, but whatever, what's the Peshara of this text? Yeah, but they were always still clay, clay, pottery. There should be something. We've had, we found, discovered things. They were, they were 38 years in one place. But Muk, Kadesh, no, Kadesh Padnea, 38 years. They traveled because they stayed there for 38 years and they ended up going to Israel. There should be an idea. We don't know where that area is. They were really clean. Yeah, that's yeah. part of it, I guess. No garbage. Yeah, yeah. They, they were Jews. They, so they were Jews. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a serious question. That's an archaeological question. That's a good that you want to raise. Why is there no mention of this hundreds of years of servitude and access in Egyptian sources? Oh, these are serious archaeological questions. Yeah, Gina? There's a book that has a theory that the Matan uh, Torah is in a different place. You sure? I don't know where it is. Well, no, they, they took a different path. You know what book? They took a completely different path. There are about 50 multiple paths. They took a different path. Did they find any garbage in the different we don't path? Know, no, no, zero, nothing. No, that guy wrote the book because he knew that Syria would not let him go there and excavate. <laughs> That's why he wrote that book. He'd get away. We don't know where to find all this corroborating evidence of Exodus. So that's the same this book is raising over here. So the first concern I had that I am intensely concerned about is trying to figure out how do I read this book and still survives an orthodox Jew. And again, anybody that goes to college and takes any discipline, sociology or religion, it's going to raise very serious questions to you. Or philosophy or religion, it's going to raise very serious questions about your Judaism. That's part number one. Right? Now, what issue am I not concerned at all about? I'm very concerned about this first question. What am I not concerned at all about? The love story? Exactly. So I got one right. You're wonderful. He's good. I'm gonna quit now. The love story that percolates throughout the entire book makes absolutely no difference to me whatsoever. I don't care about it. It's fiction, not fiction, all completely irrelevant to me. And the dynamics between the archaeologist John and Eliav, all irrelevant. Modern day Israel, all irrelevant. From my point of view, of no concern to me whatsoever. Now. The third issue where I am moderately concerned is his portrayal of Jewish history. Right? The biblical society it portrays. Now, why am I only first moderately concerned about this? Because it's fictionalized. Right. He's not an academician. He's not a, sc- a scholar of the period. He doesn't really know it all that well. So it doesn't provide me with all kinds of questions, whatever you so I could always really answer all of those issues very simply and say there's always talking about. But you might ask me now a question. Why? Why? Now on the other hand you can answer the question. If he's not a great scholar of Judaism, then why read it at all? Why should I be even moderately concerned about it? I could completely ignore it since it's only fictionalized Jewish history and not worry about it. That's a lot of people's view. Sorry? That's a lot of people's view. Okay, good. That's the only view that Okay, good. Good. So, point number one. There's three points here. Point number one is because people are all reading this and their view of Judaism is all, is all based on this book. We had said, as you recall, this book was translated into 35 languages, right? Three million copies in print now, today, that's 38 years after publication. That's extraordinary what a life this book has had. I mean. So it's been read by who knows how many millions of people. 
How many millions of people have read this book? And therefore, I do care how he's presenting Judaism to the world at large. Number one. Number two, second point, is that obviously he knows enough, he does incredible research, he knows enough to present a fairly good picture as to what Judaism is all about. He interests, he intrigues, and he challenges. Furthermore, because it's literature and a narrative, he's able to communicate basic truths in a way that the abstractions about our religion cannot do so. Which is what we said before. Because it's a narrative, because it's a novel, he's able to portray graphically certain truths that the academician cannot. And therefore it's going to be more impactful than an academic work. So if I have to assign a reading of one book about Judaism, a history of all Judaism, if I give them, let's say, Paul Johnson's book, it's academic, but it's not going to grab them. But this will grab them. This will turn them on. This will say, wow, I want to know more about Jews and Judaism. Right? So if somebody who comes in and they want to convert, I should say, read the source. No. Because I don't deal with them. Never allowed to. But that's an interesting question that one has to raise. What is the best book on Judaism? If I give them an academic work, then they probably won't care about it. Give them the source. Or alternatively, give them This is My God by Herman Wolk, which isn't as good. This is my government book. It's a very nice book about Judaism and history and all that stuff, but not as good as this book. Not as intriguing, not as captivating, not as challenging. So now, we do understand that he's able to portray certain ideas of Tanakh, as we will see, so graphically, so real life-like, that it's going to impact. And if he's true and right about this, this is why I do care about it, and that's going to shed light on some of the ideas, ideas and values in your Tanakh. Right? Let's, let me get a, an example of this and come back to it later on. In Vayikra 18, which was your homework to read, which you read on Yom Kippur, there's a very, I would say, somewhat graphic description of paganism and the sexual deviancies of paganism. Right? Begins, don't, do not do like the Egyptians have done. And like the Canaanites, don't do that either. Rather, listen to me. What do they do that you should not do? And there's a whole list of 15 or 18 per- sexual perversions, homosexuality, uh, sodomy, bestiality. All of that is in this Vayikra 18 chapter. Right? Now, you'd say it's relatively par. We all have read this a thousand times on Yom Kippur and before and after in school, and it has an impact upon us. So I want to know, were they really that bad, the pagans? Now, I've read tons of books on paganism, but it didn't cause me to have any kind of a visceral reaction to it. Then I read, as I mentioned in other classes, Norman Mailer's Ancient Evenings, which is a description of ancient Egypt which was so disgusting that I literally felt nauseous after every time I took the book to read. Literally. Just gross, 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 and worse. I know you're all going to go by and read it now. Yeah. <laughs> Sexual perversions as described by Norman Mailer, who is not an academician, but he's a novelist, are so graphic. I understand chapter 18 over here. Why is what I comes to root out that kind of, a second, that kind of paganism? 
Because paganism didn't only mean the sanitized idolatry that I read about in my academic portrayals of idolatry, but rather it graphically described what these people actually did. So that, one second, that book <clears throat> was able to communicate something about pagan society that academic books do not portray, do not bring out, and therefore I ended up with this visceral negative reaction, giving me deeper understanding, because the novel Norman Mela about this 18th chapter of Vaikra. Yeah. <clears throat> the question that it raises for me is, Norman Mela simply sensationalizing maybe what he got from Vaikra 18? Oh, no, 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 no. The, acad the, the academic work back Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Even though it's sterile when you read it, it's there, yeah. the information. Yes. Here, it, here it's there. Yes, correct. Here it's so sterile. My, my question is... So yeah, so he worked ten years on this book. He called it his magnum opus. you said you read those books. Yeah. The academic books. The, the, the few that I... The ones that I read were academic books. I wasn't interested in the one I was in his books to get a view of what they did sexually. I knew they were where, called... Where did he get it from? That's my question. Other books? Maybe. Other books. Okay, so we, we're going to we take confidence that he read them. Either that, there. or was or able, or he captured, he captured the essence of paganism the way that a novelist will try to capture it, and, a, and an academician will not try to capture it. How they did such? Now this you should have got from the chat that you had to read from book over here. I didn't get a chance. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now when you read this over here, the chapter on um, what was it called? Um, life and death. Yeah, life and death. You're going to see now. It's uh, of death and life, right? Nice and You're going to read over here exactly that portrayal of sexual deviancy that should cause you to have a viscerally negative reaction about what pagan society is really all about. Now, Norman did it much more intensely than that. Norman had, had a, again, found a page of something. He was a psycho. I mean, that's how he writes all his books, so... I mean, I don't look like him. All I'm saying, saying is that... You have to put his writing into a certain sphere when you look at it, when you analyze it. Just like we went to see the movie the other night, The Pianist. And, and it's Roman Polanski made the film. Right. So you know he's going to show you these things that you really don't want to see and maybe were not necessary. But okay. he evokes a visceral reaction. He's right. doing it. It's part of his intent. Absolutely. So maybe Norman Mailer is the same. So, uh, you know, I, I'm only raising this as a question. So you really, what you're trying true. to say over here is, is that, true? is that it's true? Correct. Which is an important question. So now, when I read Tanakh's view of this, of the, the per sexual perversions, which the Torah tells me, but not viscerally. Torah does not describe these pagan ritual things viscerally, just more sanitizedly. When I read this, and then I put two and two and two together, and I get my four sources between the source and I get my and I get the Torahs I give you examples of this as we go along then you begin to understand that yes this is what was really the case they, this was paganism cult prostitutes that I get from the Torah itself it's nanzona the gift of the prostitute umhir kelev the price of a dog do not bring to the temple, sanctuary. So what does that mean? First of all, what is the price of a dog? Homosexual. Right, so the according to the way the rabbis and others comment, Hedkelev means homosexuality. Where is the, the connection? Not to get into it right now. But they, they view homosexuality as, the, as, a, as a, what a dog does, So because it's, it's parallel. Oh, yeah. It's parallel. Again, I don't want to go into it now, but... Lotevi, 
Itnan zona is parallel to mehir kelef. The gift or the price is parallel. Those two are the same words. And a zona is the same as a kelef. And we have other references by which the complete picture actually is that this seems to mean homosexuality. Male cult prostitutes. And we understood that since some other works that I read, the psychology behind it. What's the psychology? And again, it's over here. Fertility. What's the psychology of having a cult of prostitute, male and female? Fertility. Fertility. If I want my field to grow wonderful apples, oranges, and corn and wheat, I have to fructify the field by doing an act of sex with a holy virgin. What do we in Hebrew call a cult prostitute? Kedesha. Kedesha. So I have the terms. I have the whole picture, and I just put the pieces together, which they did very graphically, which brings me to my visceral reaction against paganism. The way it's described here. And again, when you read this, you'll see, Jeannie read, did you have that visceral reaction? With Urbal's wives and the, the cult prostitutes? They should have you read it in when you learn prophets. Exactly. This is at the point. And he describes over here the Ashtoreth. Here she is. The Ashtoreth. This is what they found. It's a very well-developed woman. In order to describe, this is the mother goddess, that if you do what's right by her, which is sex, in the appropriate fashion in front of her, then you have a very fertile field. That's the Astrid? Yes, the Astrid. And it describes over here child sacrifice. Morlech, which we archaeologically know was actually the case. We described it before. The deity Morlech, which is found, curled arms, open midsection, the child is roll down and this is into the fire below his bottom and it's very graphically portrayed over here to understand this one verse over here very powerfully because you read this who as a novelist flushes out excuse the pun the details of what cult prostitution is all about and child sacrifice is all about <coughs> question yeah, so basically the, the point I'm trying to understand the point that you're making is that that on a on a basic level, on the surface, paganism is not what we would perceive Absolutely as correct. evil, but because then when you... It's not evil at all, per se. Right, but then when Hashem might... But it's what it in, implies, what it does. We have to get to this next week. Exactly what is paganism? Paganism. Who told them to do child sacrifice? Did God tell them? Did the gods tell them? The gods don't talk. Guess why the gods don't talk? The gods are... Not existent. Not, not real. So where do they get the idea from? Paganism essentially is a human projection onto what human beings actually want to do. To the children? <laughs> no, I'm to just status? Yes. To s- their perverted they, they ideas. So much that they're willing to. They Absolutely. To appease the gods. But again, the gods that ask this. Yeah, for their, right, for their fields that are going to be... Well, in Moloch's case, it was to protect the city from the enemy. What was their reasoning? Their reasoning was, the gods will protect us only forgive to the gods that which is our most precious possession, which is what? Our firstborn male children. Right. Now, the people may have reje- we, in this case, the people did reject it because we don't want to do this, the mothers. No, this is what we need. The male priest said, this is what you need to do in order to protect your city. To protect Makor, the source... Name the city around which they built the tail, this mound, has to be protected only by giving your firstborn child. Yeah. And the mother says, no, I must scream. And you can't scream. If you scream, the girl's going to be angry with you if you scream. If you don't do it happily, 
and the God's going to be angry with you. And then what happens next? Then they use sex, the power of sex, to go from the death of that child into the joyous celebration of doing a public orgy of sex. So we're talking about basic human drives over here. And that's what's evil about idolatry and paganism. It's how they try to do what's death and what's life. And then ultimately, of course, as the character over here says, Tim Nas says, that really the cult of the dead, of the dead child, is not what was really horrible. Because that would appreciate his death. But what was really destroying society was the cult of life, which is what? The public manifestations of sex. The public manifestations of sex is what really destroyed the society. Because what it did to the men to see this beautiful cult prostitute undis- be disrobed by the priest, her erotic dances, and then ultimately sex with a chosen person. So that's destroyed her marriage, her society, not the death of the child. Fascinating. So now you have a realistic portrayal of what society is really all about. Now Torah, of course, wants us to root out this kind of society. And yet, the Torah, because it was given in that pagan society, is not all that graphic about it. Torah seems to assume that you know what it's about. So obviously Torah, when it was given, people knew what paganism was all about, and therefore does not need to describe it graphically. But we, who are separated from Torah society by 3,000 years, need to have a Norman Mela or a Mitchner, and Mela is much more viscerally disgusting, call it, than Sassos, which is relatively calm and, and gentle with our emotions and our feelings and our reactions than Norman Mela is. Thomas Cahill also does a good job. Oh, correct. He also writes about it. Although not as viscerally, again, as Norman Mailer. It's much more glamorized. Right. Much more glamorized. But that, again, is, when you look at all these sources, the psychology of it, the, um, the human projections aspects of it, and the different things you read, you end up saying, this is what paganism was all about. And therefore, Torah is so much against it. Now, we're going to come back to this. Right? We're going to come back to this notion over here. But before we begin the book proper, we want to go cover, we want to cover two other elements. First, we want to figure out why did James Mishnah write this book? And second of all, we want to try to answer the questions that I had raised as to what I'm most intensely concerned about. Namely, how do I deal with this 10,000 year tell? This 10,000 year mounds when we all know that the earth was only 5763. Right? So we have to worry about that issue. First of all, let's begin with this, the essential question. Why did James should write this book? He writes histories of lots of different things. I mean, so does. therefore we chose this. He's a historian. He wrote Hawaii. He's right. not a historian. He's a novelist. He's a novelist, but he's he a basically... Did you say he was a priest also? No. He's a Southern Baptist Christian. Right. Uh, oh, yeah? Really? Yeah, but, but I, don't, no, I don't know if that's no, why he wrote the book. Really, no. yeah, okay. Why do you write about Hawaii? Why do you write about space? Why do you write about Alaska? New Mexico. Is that the place? New Frontiers. He wrote about Columbus discovering the new world. He's what attracts him? He's intrigued by new ideas. By okay, new ideas, or in this case, an old idea. An old idea by the Attic time was, was new and, and Okay, and so was new. Was it was new. You know, okay, so let's say, let's think about it. Something intrigued him about the Jews. So now we could guess, we could say that... He likes to go to the roots of things. He likes to, you know, okay. Deep. But again, why pick the Jews? 
Uh, Why not the Aztecs? Aztecs? He's a good seller. Why not? You think he's he cared about being a bad seller? Oh. Yeah. Did you choose the topic for that reason? You mentioned the roots, and Judaism is the roots of a lot of different religions. Okay, good. Okay, good. Let's think about... He may have also... Maybe there was something relevant going on. Maybe maybe something struck him. Sixty-five about an archaeological find that came out. You know, could have been He was searching for seven, eight years. Okay, so it wasn't a wasn't a so it wasn't a one-time thing. Think about the Jews. Think about Mark Twain. Think about what fascinates a person about. Good longevity is one possibility. The Jews have been around and have played an incredible role in the history of the world. Your question to me should be, why how can he not write about the Jews? Sociologically intriguing questions. Exactly. So now, longevity plays a role. The Jewish accomplishment is going to play a role over here. Or perhaps, their philosophy of life captivated him. Because now, I shouldn't tell you this, but on the very last page, don't answer this, Jesus. What did he say? What's his very last line of the book? I'll tell you in a second. Oh, you're not going to do it that way. I took it out of his book, don't worry. Don't answer the question. But it's interesting that if you were to look at the... Oh, see, who really has the strength of tackle not to look now? We can all do people are looking now. Well, I'm allowed. I read it. Yeah, if you read it, you're allowed, for sure. You read it a long time ago. Right, right, right. He says it every class. What, what did I say? say what, it, what he says every class. Oh, do I? Did I tell you that? No, no, no. I did? Okay. No, 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 no. So A, longevity. B, accomplishments. C, philosophy of life. Who they are as a people seem to be at the roots of all civilization. Or, you might, you might say that simply as a Christian, the Bible is and tells a fascinating story. It's a great book and it tells an extraordinary story. Every chapter. Whether it's... Uh, Positively, a positive portrayal of a king or a sexual relationship, wherever it may be. He reads the Bible and says, wow, look at this people, Israel. And look at they got from there to here. So, when we ask the question, what impressed Mark Twain, you might say, either the first point, their philosophy of life, of how, if you recall Mark Twain's article, the first point, which tells us about what the Jews are all about, no crime, and they take care of their sick and their elderly, and they're just great people, all that's number one. Or, what might... The from Mark Twain, the sixth point. They're still around. The Greeks rose and fell. The Romans rose and fell. They all had their ups and downs. Guess what? The Jews are still here. So Mark Twain said, I don't get it. How come the Jews are still here? How could it be? So Mark Twain said, I want to write an essay about the Jews. So any or all of these may play a role in Gainsborough's work. But again, if you look at the last page, it seems to be something that he wants us to take home with us. Right? It's the last page. Now, it's interesting also over here, in my copy, on page 23, Eliab has an interesting statement about the tale. Right? So I don't, you have different pagination, but... This wasn't Sorry? 23 wasn't homo. Was it what? Homo. Oh, no, it was not. I know. But I, I looked at it again, but okay, you're right. And, and that's okay. Um, here... Eliab asked, why do you suppose I work on these digs? He asked John Kuliani. Each time, Eliab says, I pick, I sink a pick into the earth, I open a vague sort of way to turn up something that will tell me more about Judaism. He hesitated. No, that's wrong. Not tell me, tell the world, because the world needs to know. Now what is Mishnah saying over here? 
That's why he wrote the book. That's why he wrote the book. Hmm. There's something the world... So somehow, what's going on now is that Jesus saying something, there's something extraordinarily fascinating about the Jews that the world needs to know. They take page 23 and page 942 in my book, the very last page, and then you end up saying, what is it that Mishnah wants the world to know? Something amazing about us as Jews. Now, so one can say over here that the Jews are a captivating people, an amazing people. They have survived a very long, bloody history. They've accomplished both relatively and even absolutely way beyond the numbers. Now, I assume nobody here is going to challenge that. It's obvious. Both relatively in terms of the numbers, but even absolutely. That as a people, they've accomplished such an extraordinary degree. That, their record speaks for itself. They have impacted humanity in a way that no other nation has. Challenge any one of these statements. Not only in terms of the Nobel Prize they've won, 12 or 13 or 14 percent. Not only in terms of their ethics, morality and value, the Ten Commandments that they've given the world, or Salem and Okim, or any ideas you spoke about in the first class. But think, for example, of three of the most impactful minds of the modern period. Who do you have? Albert Einstein. Einstein, number one. Marx. Marx, number two. Freud. Freud, number three. Hmm. And I have Spinoza, number four. I don't want to quote Marx because he's only the, uh, he's a converted Jew. I mean, he was, his grandparents were or something. But think about that. If Marx affected, how many, hundreds of millions of people were under Marxian doctrine? Sure. Astounding. But think of it again. Einstein. Einstein, right? Einstein changed the way that we view reality. Einstein came up with a whole new concept of physics. How we view the world. How we view the world is radically changed because of Einstein. Any question about that? No, we know that. From Newtonian physics to Einsteinian physics is a whole different quantum leap. A sea change. Absolutely correct. Pun intended. Freud. How we view the human being is changed because of Freud. The psychology, the complexity of subconscious, sorry? Freud's weather, right. A whole new way of the human being has opened up because of Freud, the subconscious mind. Spinoza. Spinoza is considered to be the first of the modern philosophers. Why? In a sense, he's the father of the Enlightenment. Why? Because he challenged authority in his own time period, in the 17th century. He challenged authority, which led the way toward the Enlightenment and the modern way of thinking. Spinoza. Which he did. He was the, the change, the person who changed because of his challenging the whole medieval way of looking at the world, bridging the way from the medieval way of looking at the world to the modern Enlightenment way of looking at the world. In the 18th century. The Marx had a big impact, but Absolutely. so look at it as a negative impact. I don't say negative or positive. Well, I'm I'm saying saying negative. In other words, we, we, you want a person that has good impact, not negative impact. Okay, no way. I would only say by saying that Marx might have had the right idea, but it got misinterpreted. Many would say that if one were to implement Marxian socialist utopian ideals, we'd have a better world. But this doesn't work in reality. So it was a great thought, it just didn't work. But there were many... Um, before it's fine. Correct. There were many who tried to, in America, was it called uh, New Landmark? Who had utopian ideals, socialist, kibbutz-like ideas in America in the 18th century. 
who did try to implement these on a smaller scale, and the kibbutz model may have worked. Sorry? New Hope? How do you know all this? I read it. High school, we read New Hope. I read a lot of things. We forget it. And never forgot it. it. (laughs) Any literate person who knows the history of ideas, any literate person who knows the history of ideas, or knows his history, has to be struck by the impact of the Jews. Einstein, Freud, Marx, Spinoza, the Jew impacted sufficiently upon James Michener that he did all of his research and wrote a book about Jews. Right? So now, simply the datum of the Jewish people impacted and impressed to such a great degree, he wrote this book. Good. Now, it had an extraordinary effect on the world. We discussed that all, 33 million copies, 35 languages, all of that, he brought the history of the Jewish people to millions and millions of non-Jews. But now let's go to my most serious concern. The most serious concern was, how do we deal with the question that this tell raised to an Orthodox Jew? Very important question. Well, how do you deal with all, everything else? Uh, trees that are millions of years old and... Yeah, correct, same question. It's correct. the first problem. Well, absolutely, I'm just saying that when I read the book, mm-hmm. it raised this question, but you're absolutely right. Or same question in all these disciplines. Right. The name means itself, Tel Makor, is a mound, the source. Good. It's 200 yards by 130 yards. Two football fields. Right? Wow. It has 20 levels of civilization. Wow. Going all the way back till 10,000. Right? Page 63 in my copy gives us all of those statistics. Right, 63. David could verify this. Right. Going back to the flint sickle of 10,000 before the common era. Do you have pictures in yours? Yeah. yeah. You do? So I don't have the pictures. That's, that's the old book from public library copies. Oh, thank you. That's the one. Yeah, 63. Okay, good. 10,000. It's good. So now you go back 10,000 years and you find a flint sickle which raises, of course, questions. We are challenged by the question. This question challenges a very profound and serious truth that we all raise with. Right? So our question, of course, is not really about the sickle. It's not about 10,000 years. It's as noted about every single discipline that we study raises these questions to us. How do we respond? So now... I begin my response by a few prefatory remarks. First of all, we cannot deny the facts of research. If, in fact, research produces certain statements, the fruits of the labor of research, if they're factually based, we cannot deny them. Many in many, in many camps do, in fact, deny the fruits of research that we know. Right? That's probably, you would say, the right wing of the Jewish spectrum. We will not do that. We will say that if any of these disciplines produce truth, with capital T, then we have to deal with it. If they have not produced truth, then it's not a problem. Right? In any one of these disciplines that we discussed before, psychology, science, political criticism, archaeology, if it's produced truth, 
then we have to deal with it and take it seriously. We can't, can't ignore it. Right? We'll get to that in a second. Absolutely correct. Yeah? Right? Truth has to be respected irrespective of any discipline. Once a certain statement is proven as true, then we... You want to say, how you doing? How are you feeling? Thank God, wonderfully well. Good, good. Come to the cliff, I feel better. I'm <laughs> <laughs> fishing, I'm trying. Once a fact is proven, a statement is proven to be true, we have to accept it and perhaps modify various assumptions or beliefs that we have. Truth is absolute and has to be pursued. Your question to me would be, although that seems to be obvious, where do we find that in traditional sources? Right? To put aside cherished beliefs and assumptions, because truth has in fact dictated otherwise to those truths and assumptions. We're going to go to a few of them. Yeah. I'm going to start with one now, then we're going to end. Yeah. No, I'm going to just make one. You have Masechet Yoma. You should look this up if you want to challenge it. Antaf Samach Tetamud Bet. 69b. This is the following statement. Chatamosh Lakadosh Baruch Hu Emet. What does that statement mean? God's seal is true. Alright? What does that mean, God's seal is truth? S-E-A-L. What does it mean to say that God's seal is truth? In other words, if, uh, if we see it in nature, I would think, if something occurs in nature and it's, and it's obviously the reality, that, that means it's from God. It's God's, God created that, so it's God's seal. And it's yes, it's more than that. What does seal mean? What does seal mean? He puts stamp of approval. God's, God's equals truth. I mean, right. The absolute thing to say about God, His seal, His impact, His imprint is truth. truth. And therefore we're required to pursue that truth. We are required to pursue that truth as chovadatit. Bakashat hayemet kechovadatit. In other words, what I want to show you next week is that we have a religious obligation to pursue truth. Not simply intellectual obligation. That I may or may not be able to sell you on. I choose to pursue truth as an intellectual obligation to myself. To learn about my synagogue, my community, anything other than myself. For some reason or other, I chose to pursue truth as an intellectual obligation. Which is reasonable. It's a nice way of spending life. Interesting, fascinating, challenging, stimulating. Oh, that's good. Philosophy, right? Correct. That's my PhD then. That's the wise PhD. Oh, there. That's it. Right. However, when I say that it's Bakashat Ahmed Kahovadatik, that I have to seek truth as a religious obligation, I am raising the stakes to this discussion. I'm saying that you are religiously required to pursue truth rather than live with falsehood. Where does it say that? I didn't get to it. <laughs> and in fact, I won't until next next week, right? Because I really, so I'm driving back myself. And I want to, oh, wow, wow. so I want to get back and. Uh, Sorry, right? I, I had to go. Um, I had a Christmas morning, so I had to come myself this morning. It's been a very long day. Stop for fun, So we're stopping. No, I'm not. We're gonna start. Take a break. Stop here, and we'll be back next week. The following two weeks will be on. Then Pesach will be off.
Right. Oh, you're doing four weeks straight? No, three. 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 three more. Today's the, uh, we'll tell uh, right? The 24th, we're on. And the, the 31st, we're on. Right? And then also, the 7th, we're on. And then we're off on the fourth, April 14th. So it's four weeks in a row. Three. We didn't worry about last week. Let's see So we, we have the 24th, which is today. So we'll do again the 31st, which is next week, and then the 7th, and then we're off the 14th. Okay. Do you think you're going to do the source throughout those? Yeah. I'm going to, again, I'm going to just concentrate on paganism. And see, and again, if you read it, you'll see why. And speak about what the biblical approach to paganism is. And then, just to happen to choose, I mean, there are many good chapters to choose, but one that we should pursue is the Sami Men of Safed, which is a little bit more capitalistic. But if we decide something else, is good. In between Passover, you're going to do? We'll see. No. I mean, it's whole it's, way in, so we'll see how. Uh, my kids are probably home, so I'll probably won't be allowed to. No, I'll take a break. Everybody. All right, okay, so we'll go. Thank you all for coming. No, no, I'm fine.